Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I consider myself somewhat of an expert on mothers because I married a woman who uh, has become a fantastic mom. In fact, when Julie and I were pregnant with our first son and she went into labor and you know we sort of did that whole thing. Did any of you find it incidentally a little uh, just odd that Tim said, uh, I had twins this week? And you thought, moms, you thought, no you didn't. <laughs> you were there, you were watching, but somebody else had those babies. Well anyway, I was in there. Uh, watching us have our first child and to my surprise it was longer it was more painful and I don't want to frighten anybody that's gonna have babies in the future but it was bloodier than I thought and uh, when when Josh came out and you know we it's a boy we didn't know it was gonna be a boy it's a boy Julie's first words were what do you think her first words were it was I want another one I'm like, I don't think any more are coming out right now, but, uh, and we did have three more, so uh, she was true to her word, and she is a fantastic mother, and then also, I'm so excited to tell you that my mom, Carol, is here today, here she is over there, raise your hand, Woo. I think mom's sort of like, let me hear how well you teach, and I'll be proud of that, depending on how it goes, but um my mom is also a great mom, and uh, one of the great stories that I remember is that uh, when I was 12 years old, I was pitching in Little League, and I had my first game coming up, and she was the only one home, and I said, I've got to warm up, Mom, I've got to warm up, and she's not like this great athlete or anything. I said, would you come out and catch the ball for me? And uh, just to add to that, she was about eight months pregnant at the time, but it left me undaunted I tried to talk her into it and eventually she said yes and so we put like this helmet on her head and we actually taped pillows all around her body she walked out she looked like stay puff, stay puff marshmallow man and she sat down and she caught me as I pitched now is that a great mom I know. So anyway, I know something about what I'm talking about. It's really interesting, actually. Most people would say that the greatest human bond is between a mother and child, that there is something unique about the connection that a mom makes with her child. And in fact, scientists tell us that it's very important for the development, for human development, that there is this bond between the mother and child. Uh, they've discovered that children actually learn their mother's voice while they are still in the womb. While they're still in the womb, they can identify their mother's voice. It is from their mother, most children learn how to speak actually, because in the first three years, mom is spending the most time with the children, and it's through that interaction that children learn how to speak. They've also done studies, and they've figured out that infants can only see about 8 to 10 inches from their face for a while. And you know how that's the exact distance that a child is from his mother's face when he's breastfeeding. And they think that's not coincidental, that a child learns how to focus and starts learning uh, dimensions and proportions with their eyes as they look into their mother's face. The other thing that they've studied is that the security of a person growing up is very much impacted by their relationship and the security they feel in their relationship, not with their father, but with their mother. Because of those early, early months and years, it's with mom that they get this sense, that we get this sense 
that everything is okay. And because of all that, uh, very often the bond that's formed between a mother and a child is the closest bond that we know as human beings. And it's interesting because we talk a lot about the fatherhood of God, right? God our Father. But the reality is the Bible talks uh, often about the motherhood of God, which some of you are just going to go, isn't that blasphemous to call God our mother? But actually in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is referred to uh, and sort of uh, compared to a mother. Like in Isaiah 66, it says, a God talking to his people in a very difficult time says, I will comfort you just as a mother comforts her children. And then in a really poignant statement that Jesus made when he was sort of grieving over the fact that in Jerusalem, people were turning away from God and turning away from him. Uh, he said some words that uh, there's sort of pain etched in it, but notice who he compares himself with when he says these words. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks uh, under her wings, and you were not willing. Very often when God talks about the most intimate feelings that he has for his people, he uses the image of a mother with her children. Because there is something about that connection that is so, so very significant. And today, here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you about uh, a secret, moms, of how you can love your children even more than you do now. And you might think, well, that's not possible. I love my children as much as I possibly could. Well, I want to give you a secret out of the Bible of how you can love your children even more than you do now. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, incidentally, Bibles are a great thing to bring to church, and uh, we open these things and read them, so we'd love to have you do that. And then you can also look around as I'm talking, and if I get a little dry or a little boring, you have something to read. It's really a good deal all the way through. Here's the first thing that uh, this is a little counterintuitive when you talk about how you love your children more. Uh, in fact, let me just talk to you about things that are counterintuitive. If you're driving uh, on ice and your car starts to go out of control, what is the thing you want to do the very most? Step on the brakes. What's the very worst thing you can do? Step on the brakes. Why? Because you spin out of control. Okay. All right. For those of you that drive trailers, if you're backing a trailer up, which way do you turn the wheel to turn the trailer in the direction you want it to go? Opposite? How many would say opposite? How many would say that you turn it toward the way you want it to go? You turn it toward the way you want it to go. It's counterintuitive. You actually turn it in the direction that you want it to go. Uh, see, counterintuitive there. If somebody's really mean to you, what is the natural thing that you want to do? Be mean back, right? What does the Bible say is the best way to handle that situation? Is to be kind, to be loving. It's counterintuitive, but it actually works best. You know that it does. It works best if you do it that way. Well, this principle we're talking about today is counterintuitive. It's not going to make sense at first. And let me set it up this way. The things that we love the most, we tend to trust God with the least. Isn't that true? The things we love the very most, 
we tend to trust God with the very least. Now, there is something that the New Testament talks about a ton of, where it talks about how much we love this actually drives us away from God. What is that in the New Testament? It talks about money, right? And so there's a huge push in the New Testament about if you grab onto your money too much, if you hold it too tightly, what's going to happen? You're going to push God away. And in fact, it's going to mess up your life. Holding on to it too tightly is going to just mess up your life. Uh, Very often, if you ask a woman, and she's a mother or a wife, who are you? The very first thing that a woman will say is, I am a mom or I am a wife. If you ask a man, who are you? What is the very first thing a man will say? His job, right? You guys know that. You'll say your job. Why is that, guys, that we do that? Because we tend to hold to our job. Our identity is wrapped in our job. That's the thing that we hold the most. And if we're totally honest, guys, it's the thing that's the hardest for us to give over to God. And women, very often, the hardest thing for you to give over if you're a mom is your children. You hold on to them as tightly as you can. Sort of your mantra goes, if I can't provide for my child, who will? If I can't protect my child, who will? And again, moms don't just, you know, don't stick out uh, about this thing of grabbing onto things. We all do it. It's just that moms tend to do it with their children. In fact, there is a concept, um, I just heard about it this week, but you guys are smarter than me. I bet you've heard of this before. There is a term that is used for parents who sort of hold on tightly to their kids and kind of hover over them, okay, kind of, and they are called helicopter parents, right? I'd never heard that before, believe it or not. I think on the, in South Carolina, it's just getting over there now, that term, but it's been in California for a while. The idea of a helicopter parent is a helicopter parent sort of hovers over his or her children and makes sure that everything's okay, and if not, will just come zooming in and take care of the situation. Uh, this is true. I heard in Scandinavia that they don't call it helicopter parents. They call them curling parents. Have you ever seen curling? Curling's that ice game where you roll the, the iron down uh, the ice, and people in front of it are sweeping in front of it, wiping away all the debris. And the idea here is that parents are in front of their children, sweeping everything, making sure that everything's okay. Uh, and there's another term that actually has become kind of popular, I guess, in colleges. College administration have a term for parents called lawnmower parents. And what they do is they mow everything down in front of their kids so that everything goes smoothly. And they actually, I was going on a website this week, and uh, there was a, a, a college that has instructions for their parents. And the top instruction for parents is, please don't get too involved. You know, it's sort of this idea of parents calling the professors, checking on their children's grades while they're in college. It even goes to young professionals where parents will set a meeting with the boss to argue salary about their children. I'm not making this up. And uh, if you do that, just I want to lovingly call you a lawnmower parent. Okay, so there's this really interesting dynamic is we feel like the tighter we hold something, The more we show it love, the better it is for it. And the reality is, the tighter we hold it, sometimes we work against the very thing that we want the most. We want our children to be mature. 
We want them to be able to handle their lives their own way. We want them to have a measure of independence, not too much. We don't want them to get too far away from us, but a measure of independence. And when we hold too tightly, very often we're not loving our children at all. And the flip side of it is that we start getting confused, and and mothers can do this, fathers can do it too. You get confused as to your identity. And you think that your number one identity is that I'm a mom. And yet what the Bible says is your number one identity is not that you're a mom. It's that you're a child of God. So we're going to look at this person in 1 Kings 17, a mother who's going to teach us some things about the secrets of how we put uh, our children in the right place. Uh, This story is about a guy named Elijah. He's a prophet. He's probably one of the most interesting prophets in the Old Testament. And again, if you have your Bibles and you want to just sort of glance around, there are some really interesting stories about Elijah right there at the end of 1 Kings. Uh, He's going to meet a widow. And let me just tell you a little bit about widows in the Old Testament. Uh, As soon as you say widow, you know that that's a woman who has gone through uh, a measurable pain and there is a story to her life. In the Old Testament, it was way worse than it is today. Uh, Women in a chauvinistic society were not allowed to work, uh, for the most part, and they weren't allowed to own land. And that meant that if you were a widow, and unless somebody uh, married you, unless uh, the husband's family somehow took care of you, you were in huge trouble. You were usually left begging to survive because there was really no way to make an income. And this widow, we learn, has a son. And so, uh, of course, we already are going to understand that probably the closest thing, the most important thing in her life is her son. And it's not only just because there's that mother-child emotional bond, it's also because the son, for her future, is her only hope. Because in that society, it would be a man, as her son grew, that would be able to take care of her. And so she was in this situation where she was very dependent on her role as mother to make it through life. Her identity clearly was that of a mother. That was her hope. That was her future. That was the way that she was going to survive. And so the story is set up that Elijah, being a prophet, uh, has prophesied that it's not going to rain in Israel for three years. And back in that day, I mean, we know how bad it is around here when it doesn't rain. In that day, if it didn't rain, it caused huge problems. So there would be significant famine. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. He is in a ravine, it says, as the story opens up, he's in a ravine down in the south part of Israel. And he's being taken care of by God, actually. There's some water there. Uh, Believe it or not, there's some birds that are coming and feeding him. And so it's kind of a weird setup. But after uh, a few years of being there, after a bit of time, the ravine drives up. The birds stop coming to feed him, and he's in desperate trouble. And God comes to him and says, listen, I have somebody that's going to provide for you. It is a widow that lives up in Seraphath. And let me just show you. Let me show you on a map where this is. Uh, This is a picture of Israel. If you look down by the Dead Sea, which is on the right, down there at the bottom, if if you can see Jericho, Jericho is right above the Dead Sea, They believe that where uh, Elijah starts is in a place called Cherith, and Cherith is right by Jericho. Now, where this woman lives is up by Caesarea Philippi, actually, all the way at the top of the screen. 
It's about 100 miles from one place to the other. And that's where God says, there's a widow up there, and she's going to take care of you, so I want you to go up there. But let me show you one other thing before uh, we switch off the, the screen. Do you see where it says Samaria right there in the middle of the screen? Yeah? Can you see that? Samaria. Okay. Right about there is a dividing point between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom, down by Judea, is still faithful to God, pretty much still worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. But up in Samaria and north, uh, the religion has changed, and they worship a god called Baal, and Baal is the rain god. And so it's a very interesting setup that it's not rained in Israel now for three years. And uh, now Elijah is being sent up to a widow that lives up in that area that probably is very familiar with Baal and worship of Baal. And that's where Elijah is going. So we pick up the story in uh, 1 Kings 17.7. It says, sometime later the brook dried up. That's down in Cherith where uh, we had just seen. Uh, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Sarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went up to Sarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going uh, to get it, he called, uh, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Now, this seems like a very reasonable request. Bread and water, it's about the most basic thing you can ask for. And so God has told him to go up there. He's told him that this widow is going to be able to uh, you know, prepare something for him to supply him with some food. And so he doesn't think that it's out of the ordinary to ask for these requests. But the story takes a sharp turn as we continue. In verse 12, it says, this is her replying, as surely as the Lord your God lives, very interesting that she says that. She does not say the Lord our God or the Lord my God. She recognizes that Elijah is a prophet. She's not sure where she stands with this God thing, with this Yahweh thing. She lives where the God is Baal. But Baal, being the rain God, how's he been doing in the last three years? Not so well. And so she's sort of, you know, I'm open. I'm open to a different God here. She says, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. Now listen to this. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And I would think that Elijah, one of his first thoughts is, God Really? Really? Is this the person you send me to to supply my needs? <laughs> it doesn't sound like she can do that very well. All of a sudden, the request that Elijah has made seems totally selfish, totally self-absorbed, like, don't you get it, sir? My son and I are starving to death. I have watched my son probably over months and weeks and now days get weaker and weaker and weaker and I'm basically gathering our last meal that's what I'm doing here I'm getting sticks just so we can cook the last little bit of food that we have there is no hope for us to get any more food there's no rain on the horizon there's no one more that I can beg from because nobody's got food 
This is our last meal. Now, picture yourself as Elijah. And clearly the man has a heart. Clearly the guy knows how to love. How is he going to respond to this woman who, bad enough that she's going to starve to death, but moms, could there be anything worse than watching your child starve to death? Could there be anything worse? And she can't do anything about it. And that makes this instruction totally crazy. That makes what Elijah is about to do seem so counterintuitive, so wrong, that really, if you cut off the story after reading this next part, you might very well say, if that's what a man of God is like, I don't want anything to do with that guy's God. He says these words, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. In other words, go home and make that meal. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. In other words, go home, make that bread, leave your son who's at home starving. To, don't give it to him. Don't give it to him. I want you to bring it back here to the city gate where we are and you're going to give that bread to me. And then he says this, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain in the land. Now, you just have to understand, for this woman, she's just met Elijah. For this woman, this God, Yahweh, is something that is not the God of her land these days. She's heard about him. She's open to him. But this is a totally wild request. I mean, moms, could you imagine somebody asking you to do this? It is so counterintuitive to taking care of your child, of providing and protecting for your child. It is so, it just seems so wrong. So again, we're sort of surprised as the story continues that she went away and did as Elijah had told her. And then the result... So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, her son. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And here's the lesson that we learn. The only way, the only way for this mother to provide for her child was to put God first. It was the only, she could not do it. She was at the end of her ability to provide. And so what Elijah says is instead of doing what is so natural, what is so just how you're wired is to do everything you can to provide for your child. I don't want you to do that. In this instance, I want you to put God first. And I want you to trust that God will take care of this situation for you. That's what I want. And the angst that you can just picture her feeling as she leaves Elijah, goes back home, takes the only bread in her house 
makes it into a piece, uh, or actually flour, makes it into a piece of bread and brings it back to this prophet. All of that angst, all of that, what that required. In it, what God was saying, listen, there's only one way in this case for you to love your son. And that's if you put God first. It's the only way it's going to work this time. The story continues, you would think, well, she passed the test, right? I mean, is that the major test that she passes? The, the story goes on. This is so uh, often the case in the Bible. Just when you think nobody could go any further, God asks again. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. So the crisis of the first time, that was horrible. She pictured her son dying. That's, you would think, that's as bad as it gets, no? You know what's worse? Is when your child dies. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me? Man of God, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And I love how honest the Bible portrays things. You know, this sort of holier-than-thou, spiritual kind of talk that is only true in the Bible and could never be true in real life. This is, this is gritty, raw stuff. She looks at Elijah and basically says, I would have been so much better if you had never come, if you had never shown up. I mean, it is a woman, a mother in her grief. It would have been better if you never came. And then she does a really interesting thing. She says, uh, there's sort of guilt involved. I know that it's because of my sin that my son has died. Having God close was a horrible idea because my sin is exposed and all of a sudden now I'm being punished. And my punishment is that my son dies. And that's such an interesting thing. You know, some different ones of you handle things differently. I know that. But some of you are prone toward guilt. Something bad happens in your life. Your first thought is, it's my fault. It's my fault. I did this. Even if there's no connection, that's what this woman does. And the reality is it has nothing to do with her sin. It's not her sin that has caused her son to die. But what's happening here is the, the fiercest instinct that mothers have is to protect their children, right? That's the fiercest of all of them it is to protect. It's why, you know, they say never get in, in, in between a mother bear and her cubs. You know, just don't do it because you're dead meat. Because it is the fiercest natural instinct that a mom has. And, you know, that instinct doesn't go away no matter how old a child gets. A couple of years ago, um, I was still living in South Carolina, and my brother and I were out here visiting my mom, and we were down in Laguna, we were having a great time together, and we decided to split up to do some shopping, and so Joel and my mom went off in one direction, and I went in a different direction, and we said we'd meet back at the car, uh, at, at least that's how I remember it, is that we would meet back at a, at a specific time. So I came back to the car at the time that we had said, and I sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there, and they didn't come. And eventually I thought, you know what, they must have thought we were meeting somewhere else. And so I started walking around, and I walked up and down Forest. And when I got to the other end of it, there's an ice cream shop at the other end of Forest, and I, I saw my mom sitting on uh, a brick wall. And I went up to her and I said, there you are. And she turned, and if looks could kill, 
She could have killed me. I mean, she was so angry. And she goes, where have you been? And I, and I, we, I ran this past her. It's okay. She, she said I could tell this story. And I said, where have I been? Where have you been? I've been at the car where we said we were going to wait. And she said, we didn't say we were going to wait at the car. We said we were going to meet at the ice cream shop. And I said, no, we didn't. We said we were going to meet at the car. And I realized this was a losing battle because I was fighting against a mom's protective instinct. And this is so funny because she, here's what she had thought. She thought I had been mugged. Yes. She thought that I had been robbed. She thought I had been drug up to a parking garage that was about two blocks up. And the way that I know this is because my brother wasn't there when I came. He was out checking out the parking garage at my mother's request. Please go look for your brother. He's probably behind one of the cars as a bloody mess. And so he came back and he saw me and had a big smile on his face and by this time Mom uh, was, I think, sort of smiling about it, uh, I hope. Otherwise, it's going to be a long Mother's Day. And, uh, and it was, but you know what? It's just, and I, we talked about it this morning. She goes, you know what? You just can never take the mother out of a mother. You know, there's just that protective instinct. And that's exactly what's happening to the widow. Her son, you know, his life is slipping away, slipping away, slipping away. And she watches in agony as he dies. And she's being tested again. So it says, Elijah says to her, give me your son. And he took her from her arms. So she put out her her son and he took her. And he carried him to an upper room where he was staying and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. So there's this amazing thing that takes place. And Elijah takes the boy up and asks, and you know, some of you that are familiar with the Bible, you say, well, that happens every once in a while. People get risen from the dead. We don't see it a lot these days. But back in that day, I guess it happened some. It had never happened before. This is the first time anyone is asking God to raise somebody from the dead. It had never happened before. This is an amazing, amazing uh, act of faith by Elijah. There is amazing faith by the mother because she's handing her son over. And God does an amazing thing. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are the man of God and that the word of the Lord, uh, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And she's tested. And here's the reality of it. And here's the thing that's so important to know. Is that moms, you can provide a lot of things for your children. But in the end, it's only God that can provide what your child needs. Moms, you can protect your children from all kinds of things. But in the end, you know that it's God that you've got to rely on to protect your child. But here's the great news. As much as you love your children... And there's no one on earth that loves your children more than you do. There is someone who loves your child more than you do. And it's God. And God watches over your child. 
And God in his wisdom provides for your child. And it's not that you're not a part of it and that you don't play a major role. That God doesn't use you to do these things. But in the end, in the end, it is God that provides. It is God that protects. It is God who loves your child more than you could ever imagine. And that's the lesson that the widow learns. And it's the lesson that she teaches us. And moms, whether it's with your children, or men, it's with your children, or men, it's with your business, or, you know, women, it's with some, something that is so tight and so precious to you. God always says, put me first. Put me first in it. Don't hold it so tight that you don't trust me with it. Because when you give it to me, when you trust me with it, you can be guaranteed that I will handle it the right way. I will do what needs to be done. A few years ago, when our son uh, was now driving, and um, in the middle of the night, he wasn't living with us at the time, in the middle of the night, uh, my wife woke up, and she just had Josh on her mind, totally. And so she couldn't go back to sleep. I don't know if that's ever happened to you moms, but you wake up and one of your children's on your mind and you can't go back to sleep. And so she just started praying for Josh. She just prayed over and over and over again. She didn't have any idea what was going on, but she prayed. The next day, Josh came over and said, Mom, you would not believe what happened to me last night. And Julie was sort of thinking something must have happened last night. And he said, I was driving up to see my girlfriend uh, about 100 miles away. And it was raining. And my car hit a puddle and hydroplaned. And I flew off the road. And my car rolled over, landed back on its wheels. I was totally shaken up. But I didn't think I was hurt. I got out of the car. Another car had pulled up behind me. They said, we cannot believe you're not dead after that accident. And he looked at his hands and his legs and he said, I don't even think I'm hurt. And so they said, well, get in our car and we'll take you, you know, we'll take you where you're going. And the next day he came back to his car, started it up and drove it off. <laughs> and, she's, and, and so he said, that happened to me last night, mom. And Julie said, what time? And it turned out to be the exact time she had woken up to start praying for Josh. And I love this story because there's a role, moms, that you play. There's something that you provide for your children that no one else can. But your role is never to replace God. It's never to think that you're the ultimate provider or the ultimate protector. Because God says, that's my job. That's what I do for your children. You need to trust me with it. And as you do, as you do, you will teach your child how to love God. You'll teach your child how to trust God with the most precious things in your child's life. And it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? It's so different than how we think that it works. Well, here's what I'd like to ask you to consider thinking about. And you know what? This doesn't have to just be for moms. Dads, some of you need to do the same thing. And if you don't do it with children, you can do it with your work. Whatever you hold on the tightest to. But there's two things that I want you to sort of think through. The next time with your children that you think, it's up to me, I want you to remember this. It's not up to you. 
It really isn't. When you think about provision for your child, if I don't provide, nobody else will. It's up to me. I just want you to think, no, it's not. It's not up to me. I might have a part in this, but ultimately it's up to God. If God wants to provide, then God will provide. God provides. The other thing that you're so inclined to do, that I'm so inclined to do, is we rush in. We don't even give our children a chance to fail. If there's any chance that they'll fail, we're going to come in, we're going to swoop in, we're going to hover in, we're going to sweep in, we're going to lawnmower in, and we're going to make sure that our child does not fail. And here's the problem when we do it, is we don't give God a chance to act. We don't give God the chance to come in and say, let me do a miracle. Let me intervene in a way that nobody can deny. But you need to give me a little space. Give me a little time. Don't just rescue all the time. Give me just a chance to do what I can do. And God says, you're going to have stories. You'll have stories if you give me a chance. If you let me come in and rescue. Uh, years ago, our, uh, now she's an 18-year-old, but she was like 14 years old. And she went on a mission trip down to the inner city of Atlanta. We were living in the south. And the first night she called us, and she was crying. And all the girls on this trip were crying. They had never been in a, the inner city of a major city. I mean, I don't know if it was true, but our daughter was telling us she was hearing gunshots. She does tend to exaggerate at times, so I'm not positive that it's true. But, I mean, we were, and so Julie and I were looking at each other, and Atlanta was about three hours away. We're like, what should we do? And there was a part of us that wanted to go immediately drive down and just bring her home. And then there was a part that said, we need to let this play out. And that week turned out, because we didn't go, turned out to be the most powerful week in Kate's life. It changed everything. In fact, her whole uh, profession, the whole uh, sort of trajectory of her life, everything she wants to do comes out of that week. If you were to ask her, it was that week that made me realize that I want to help children who are in need. And if we had rushed in, what would have happened? never would have gotten that but God said I got a plan I have a plan you're going to have to step back it's not up to you every time don't rush in so I want to encourage you with that it's not up to you you don't have to rush in God has it under control God is doing something amazing well here's what I want to do I want to pray for you mothers because uh, you guys are so incredible and I just want to give you a prayer so if you are a mom, would you please stand? Mom, grandma, if you've had a child, please stand. Great, great. Now listen, if you're expectant, if you are going to have a child, then I'd like you to stand as well. If you're pregnant. And I would like one other group to stand. If you are not yet a mother, but that is a great desire for you. You want to be a mother. Maybe you're trying right now and having some difficulty. Maybe it's a future thing. But if you want to be a mother, if you are hoping that that's part of God's plan for you, then would you stand as well? And we have a tradition here uh, where we, um, just sort of in solidarity, is we put our hands toward the people we're praying for. So uh, the rest of you that are sitting, if you would just put sort of a hand of blessing, we call it. Just put a hand of blessing toward the person who's standing the closest to you. Maybe it's your wife or your mother. Uh, but whoever, just put that toward them. And we want to pray for these wonderful women. Lord, thank you so much for these ladies. Thank you for the incredible, incredible sacrifices they have made. 
And whether it's uh, moms that have raised children and are now empty nesters, maybe grandmothers, and we thank you so much for their faithfulness and all that's happened over the years and the amazing impact they've had on their children. Or right now they have teenagers maybe, Lord, and you know the ups and downs of raising uh, teenagers and some of the greatest highs and some of the greatest lows come at this time. And I pray that you give them strength and give them patience and the ability to trust you with their children. And Lord, some of these women are raising elementary age children and in some ways this is the sweetest time of life. And the kids are sweet and they haven't totally learned how to rebel yet. And it's so awesome. And I just pray great blessings during these years. Uh, Just the bonding and the the wonderful memories that are being created. And Lord, some of these women are in preschool years, which are the most exhausting years. And they may have one or two or more children around them that uh, need their attention constantly, that they need to be vigilant and watching after them. And they just need energy and they need some sanity and they need some time away. And I pray that you would provide those things for these women. And Lord, there's some here that are pregnant and we pray that we, uh, this child that is growing inside of them, that you would protect this child and that you would uh, keep this mother healthy and prepare her for birth and for uh, the entrance of her child into this world. And then, Lord, we pray for women here that want to be pregnant. Uh, Maybe some of them want to be pregnant now, and for some of them that is the greatest desire they have, is to be moms. And I pray, just as you did with women in the Old Testament and New Testament that you looked after, who were having a hard time getting pregnant and yet... Uh, You were their God and you provided. And we pray for that provision, Lord. We pray for women here that are not ready to get pregnant yet, but in the future they're hoping that that's their story. Prepare them to become mothers. We are so grateful for our moms. We thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us with these women. Help us today and really every day to honor them and to love them and to treat them with the dignity that they deserve. We thank you for these women. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.